Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hi there and welcome to this episode of Cross Section. I'm Joe Evans and I'm joining you for my parents' study in southwest London. Hi, I'm Danny Webster and I am at home in Sutton in South London. Hi, I'm Alicia, an Essex girl representing in North London at the EA176 offices. Well, it's lovely to have you virtually join us today. And every week we put a poll on the Evangelical Alliance socials. So that's EAUK on uh, EAUK News on Twitter and Evangelical Alliance on Instagram. Yes, I'm getting the socials plug out early this week. And we asked today, what should we be talking about? We always like to say that this podcast is a conversation. We want to hear what you have to say, what new stories you would like to hear us talking about. And I think the best question we had this week, so it wasn't so much what what news story we should be talking about, but someone wanting to hear our thoughts on the best way to keep up with the news. Alicia, what's your what's your opinion on that? I have multiple options actually. So I'm subscribed, uh, paid subscription for the Spectator and another free mail out called the Knowledge, which pulls in news from around the world not just uh, current affairs in the UK so I'd say that would be my current affairs conversations but then I'm a huge YouTuber so in the sense of I follow quite a lot of accounts that are having political conversations again across the spectrum those that are here uh, in the UK Navara Media, The Spectator, Trigonometry, amongst others, as well as International, Joe Rogan, Jordan Peterson, now Candice Owens, listened to a previous Owen episode where I spoke about that. So yeah, I say they're my two balances of news input. I feel like I should say that not everyone's news input will be as high as Alicia Edmonds. <laughs> and actually, I should clarify, the question was, what's our favourite way to keep up with the news? Not not the best way. Sorry, I misspoke. But Danny, go on. Well, I have two quite different ways of keeping up with the news. One is Twitter. And I follow <laughs> a lot of journalists, a lot of news outlets. Um, so that's how I receive the bulk of my news, particularly if I'm coming into work, I'll be browsing Twitter, clicking through, looking at stories. And that's a good way of keeping up, but it's also quite a curated way in that I choose mm. which journalists I follow. So I choose the bits of news that I get. But the other thing is BBC Breakfast. Uh, particularly if I'm up early, I have small children. Uh, so often I'm up early uh, in the morning. At, and and I find that a really good way of understanding what are the stories that are in the wider public consciousness? What are the stories that are going out to everyone. So the bits of politics and intrigue that I might be interested in reading long articles about might not appear at all on BBC Breakfast News, but other stories will get significant coverage. So it's, it's I think it's quite a helpful counterbalance. Yeah, oh, my, my favourite way to listen or to keep up with the news is, again, radio. I wake up to the radio every morning and because of the time I wake up, it falls on the hour. So I wake up to the headlines every morning which sometimes is a terrible way to wake up I also enjoy news podcasts like newscasts but yeah I think you make a good point Danny I guess my other way is is through social media um whether that's my favorite we're going to be talking about mental health later whether that's the best thing for me I'm not sure but I had a really good piece of advice a couple of years ago of 
follow people that you like but that you fundamentally disagree with and I think that's been very helpful in the on my social media feeds yeah I'm gonna see stories and things that are going on that wouldn't be in my natural bubble of information which I think helps to yeah stretch me and I think as a Christian it's important to to not just yeah to be invested in what the world for want of a better phrase and the stories that everyone else is invested in as well as myself in my my particular field of interest this week we're doing things slightly differently we've got yeah well we're doing our usual three stories but if we're honest we are cramming in a couple of extras in there but to start with we're thinking about medicine and AI artificial intelligence you may have seen what I found an incredibly creepy video of a robot talking in the House of Lords and we've also been talking about an unheard article that had the subtitle normality has been treated as a problem that needs solving Unheard isn't a, it's not a Christian outlet, it's it's just a space for perhaps slightly unconventional opinions to be shared. So kind of looking at the idea of medicine not so much being used to preserve normality, but to go above and beyond normality. But Danny, I'm going to come to you first. Why, why was there a robot in the House of Lords? And why was she in dungarees? Well, I'm going to give you... Well, I'm going to give you the basic uh, news story here. Uh, A robot artist called Ada told British lawmakers this week that although it was an artificial creation, it was still capable of producing art. And it spoke at a parliamentary inquiry into how new technologies will affect the creative industries. It's described as the world's first ultra-realistic AI humanoid robot artist. And as you say, it was wearing dungarees and a black haired wick at one point though its creator did have to reboot it during the proceedings showing some of the limitations perhaps of technology i i find this field absolutely fascinating uh, because we wrestle more with greater capacities for technology to do things that are more human-like and as we increasingly use uh, medical technologies to support and to assist a human life through medicine and other things, the question always starts to rise up as to, well, is there a crossover point? Is there a point at the at which these artificial creations become too human-like? And is there a point at which um, technological intervention in human life is too much? Or where do we draw those lines and how do we draw those lines? I don't think we're going to get too much into all of the medical ethics, but it is fascinating. There was also another story about uh, brain cells uh, playing the old-fashioned computer game Pong this week. So it's fascinating, and I think it does cause you to tease out some of these questions about what is human life? Well, yeah, what what is your gut instinct? When you see a robot in the House of Lords, okay, the fact that she was meant to be an artist, maybe that's trying to justify... The flowery blouse and, and dungarees but but what what is your what is your gut instinct do you look at that and think oh that's a good thing that's gonna you know further the cause of mankind yeah what what's your gut reaction my gut reaction is it's a robot um and <laughs> you, you can put dungarees and a wig on a robot and it's still a robot you so need I, insights not... here on cross-section that you won't get anywhere else <laughs> i know these are high-powered things but but it is 
interesting and i think we do have to take these things seriously some there was some re- research from theos that asked questions about could robots one day have souls and five percent only five percent of people did agree that one day a robot might have a soul and but i don't think a robot can have a soul but i think it's always more interesting coming at it from the other uh side uh, we start with a human but how much intervention how much engagement so as you mentioned the article that touched on surrogacy was it treating normality as a problem or was it seeking to restore normality how are we using medical intervention and to and to what end yeah i saw so yeah my head's been in this space this week and i saw an article about former rugby player rob burrow who he has MND, uh, motor neuron disease, horrible degenerative, de- oh, that's a hard word, degenerative neurodegenerative. Thank you, disease. And he now is using a robot or a, a computer that has recorded bits of his voice and he's using that to talk. And I was thinking, wow, that's such a good use of technology that when he's essentially, in his words, trapped inside his body, he's still able to talk. And it's things like that. It feels to me easy to think, oh, that's that's such a good example of God's gift in creation and creativity and technology, science, design, meaning that we're able to do things like that. And then I didn't really go into it. The Unheard article I refer to is talking about a gay couple in New York who are suing their health insurance, I believe, because they won't uh, provide funding for them to have IVF or surrogacy like they would for a heterosexual couple. And and so it's making this argument, should should medicine cover what is inherently unnatural two men can't produce a baby on their own and yeah it just got us thinking how do we draw the line on what is a a good aspect of medicine and technology and something to be celebrated and when is it too far and I see what what are your thoughts how how do we as Christians kind of navigate that space and work out yeah where that line is I think just listening to your both reflections on Ada, who's the AI robot that was in the House of Lords, you both picked up the language of the artist by calling it a she. And I think that's Mm. my greatest pushback in the conversation around Ada, this robot that is, it's a robot by nature. It has zero capacity in human likeness. The, The creator artist calls it a robot. And yet in its language, if you go on the website, it it says Ada is the world's first ultra realistic artist robotic. She draws and paints. Uh, She has eyes. She in her first solo show at Oxford University. And it's like, I think I find that part quite, as someone who is a she, quite frustrating that a robot Mm. can personify a woman. Uh, And I think it shows something of the culture that is able to associate something that is created not purely by human hands and associate it with a female. So that's my main pushback. Is there a place for it in the House of Lords? I mean, it's a one-off. I hope we won't be seeing many more robots in Parliament having important conversations. In terms of the other conversation around kind of motor neuron disease and the kind of the, the, the lab that is kind of testing cells, the doctor in that conversation talks about the long-term gain that this will benefit 
neurodegenerative diseases. It's a technology. Yes, they're playing with human cells, but the idea that they will learn how it works in order to support and be part of a treatment plan for things like motor neuron disease and Alzheimer's. I think I'm more forgiving in the longer term aim rather than the ability to kind of research and and manipulate human cells although I'm still on a learning uh, journey about stem cell research. So interview and ask me that question a few months or years down the line. I think the unheard story is it's controversial because the subject of surrogacy is a highly political issue. It's a highly difficult conversation. It touches on human emotions, the infertility of an individual, whether that's a heterosexual couple or a same-sex couple. For Christians, how do we engage in the surrogacy conversation across the board, whether you are a same-sex couple or or a heterosexual one? I think that it takes bravery to say convictions and just looking at kind of one of our member organizations engagement in kind of the law commission's response in 2019 that are reviewing kind of surrogacy law in the UK they opened with a remark for which they said Christian medical fellowship is opposed to surrogacy as a principle and then it goes on and uses the biblical narrative of what is family family is not conceived as an idea but it's born out of the stability of marriage between one man one woman uh, for life but recognizes that the the challenge of infertility that families uh, and couples face so the technology and surrogacy is a whole new space that I'm kind of learning and, and that unheard article I would recommend others to read and I have shared that on with couples because I do think it's a technology piece that's it's it's gone a step too far is how I would answer that yeah one. I think you exemplified there that we are we are forcing a lot of different conversations together in one here but on the on the surrogacy note so I both I want to be you know we need to be sensitive and compassionate to the fact that people are going to be listening to this with all sorts of different baggage but I wanted to ask I, I think we could be assuming a lot of knowledge or or a, uh, we could be assuming a lot here so if you're a Christians married couple one man one woman and you seek surrogacy with a consenting woman happy to carry your baby in her womb what what's the issue I think the I think the fundamental issue is that it is separating uh, childbirth from the human body that conceived that child so it's bringing another person to carry that baby presuming the embryo uh, came from the mother and father but was then carried in a surrogate mother so I, I think there is then the question of well what is the human body for and is it being used in a way that effectively treats the body as a commodity and I, I, I think there are obviously people that uh, infertility is obviously a significant challenge for many couples and a weird conversation uh, I often find myself in situations as a parent thinking okay I have children. That is an incredibly fortunate position. I don't ever want to take that for granted or to minimise the struggles that other people have had. But I think we 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 have to recognise struggles without thinking that it is our right to, to do anything that we want in order to overcome those challenges. And I think that's where actually there are uh, ways that we might be able to overcome some of the challenges we face. But in doing so, we 
we do greater harm to how we uh, understand and consider uh, our humanity. There's also somewhat of a unrealistic expectation, which part of the unheard explores, but doesn't go in full detail in saying that the surrogate, so I could be a surrogate under UK law as a single woman, I could be part of the conversation to be a surrogate. By faith convictions, I would never go through with that. But if I did hold a baby for nine months, that somehow that this isn't a psychological, emotional deep connection that will be forming with the child that at the point of birth I'm its legal parent for a moment but there's an exchange that happens that somehow that that would be easy and there's somewhat of a disconnect that even by law the ones that comes in and mediates where there's a disagreement between the actual birth parents and the surrogates to be it's the courts that then are to make that judgment and I just find it's not a perfect scenario. Yes, there might be consenting adults. Yes, there might be an agreement in principle, but life is lived through reality. Uh, and so who knows what happens on the 10th month? Will that exchange of a human life that has been nurtured, spoken about, medical trips be easy to hand over to the other parents who've been longing and wanting that? I just feel that the emotional disconnect around family planning and particularly this issue of surrogacy is is overlooked and dismissed Mm. even with consent well get in touch with us if you have had any experience with this or you know people who have any of the issues that we've just talked about really get in touch with us cross.section at eauk.org we'd love your insight next on to mental health so monday uh what date was monday the ninth, the tenth, so close. The tenth was the uh, it was Mental Health Day. So unsurprisingly, there's been lots of articles around mental health this week, and it just got us thinking again. What what do Christians have to say into this space, and what what can we be doing to fight the so called mental health epidemic? Danny, can I come to you first? Yeah, I think I think we do have a far greater understanding of our mental well-being in in our current culture and society, and I think that's really healthy. I, I think it's really healthy to understand that our mental health affects us, that there are circumstances that we might struggle with. But I, one of the things that I think is really important is being able to navigate the breadth of things that come under uh, discussions of mental health, because sometimes at one level, there can be very serious uh, psychiatric situations that need serious medical intervention. But at the other end, there are difficult situations that we all encounter that impact our mental well-being. And it's not to say that those things don't matter. It's just that they're not the same. Like, brain surgery is not the same as a bruise on my leg. And I think we need to be able to talk about mental health in a way that recognises that, actually, a lot of us will encounter challenging and difficult situations, and we should seek to navigate them well, and there may be situations... Like, there was a story about Prince Harry and his emotional support dog, and I think John Humphreys was somewhat uh, mocking of that. Uh, Different people have different ways of navigating and building up their own resilience, and I think that's, that's good. For some people, it's taking a walk outdoors. For other people, it's having a a dog. That's good, but it's not the same, and it shouldn't minimise more significant mental health situations that people might face. Mm. 
And I think there's been criticism, I've seen criticism this week of kind of conflating the issues of stress and mental illness. And I guess stress being more about someone's circumstances. We want to be really careful in what we're saying in that not that circumstances can't lead to mental illness. And part of the wonderful thing about being a Christian and understanding how God sees us and cares for us is that allows us to desire the best care and treatment for our mental health gives us great stability and motivation to do so but I've seen criticism this week that part of the reason for this mental health epidemic is lies at the feet of the government and and what has been said like a lack of kindness and compassion in terms of when it comes to stability around housing the cost of living crisis Alicia what are your thoughts on that hmm Again, wanting to be fair in my engagement and response. I feel culturally and just in the UK alone, there's a lot for which all parts of society have shared experiences. We've all gone through a pandemic. We're all going through the uncertainty of what kind of, you know, the cost of living in terms of inflation and mortgage rates. There's a lot of pressure and stress that people are experiencing that are shared and particularly in our society there's a rise in anxiety there's a rise in kind of anxiousness about what the future holds if you ask a young person what does what does my tomorrow look like if I finish a degree or I get the GCSEs there's so many unknowns there's so many difficulties that they that they need to navigate and kind of move through and so culturally we're facing a lot of situations that are pressuring us and are making life incredibly difficult. I guess where I'm slightly slower to move into the language of mental health is that not all life circumstances, pressured, difficult, is a mental health issue that needs a medical plan and treatment. And at the moment, that is the narrative that kind of makes it as linear as that, you've got anxiety in your life go to the GP and get antidepressants or if you've got you know something that's really difficult medication is is an answer and a route out and we're currently in a circumstance for which we don't know what the next 10 years are going to look like but I'm pretty confident it's going to be pressured it's going to be difficult and there needs to be a wider conversation around medical response and intervention is a pathway but it can't be a sustained pathway for the rest of people's lives. It can't be the only pathway. And I think that's part of the conversation that is slowly being broadened out. Uh, and, and in particular, talking about our own working habits. We're also a society that loves to work incredibly hard and long hours. We're a society that doesn't know how to rest. Uh, as Christians, some of us don't know how to take the Sabbath well and honour that, which is all about a reset, a recalibration. It's for our good. So there's a lot in our lives where we, we need to refocus and rethink Am I doing life the best way that I can? And yes, life is difficult, but where do I need medical support? And where else do I need to take other steps to kind of move forward and and bring balance and have that network? Because not everything can be medicated. We, We like on this podcast to both think how our Christian faith impacts the way we respond to news stories, but also 
how our Christian faith means that we can add something different in the conversations that we have with our peers. And I was struck, I think it was on the Times, there was an article with the headline, six ways to to deal with loneliness. And I just thought that is that is one of the the mental health kind of problem areas that's recognized in society today. And I was thinking how as Christians, we can add to that conversation and invite people to come and see our church families. That I think that's something that is at the core of kind of the Christian life experience. We should all be part of church families where we feel loved and valued and we remind each other about the big important truths in life, the the gospel truths that underlie everything else. And and I, uh, as a as a tool, I'm not sure that's the right way to say it, but as, as a way of inviting friends along to church, yes, ultimately we want them to hear the good news of Jesus, but what a beautiful thing to offer of, you know, if you're experiencing loneliness, come and see my church family, feel connection there. And I guess we can hope from that, that people would want to know more about the Jesus that inspires us to live that way. I just called him the Jesus. That's weird. Jesus. Um, <laughs> fine, our final story this week, there was a headline in the news talking about how charities should be very wary of um, speaking out politically, political lobbying. As the Evangelical Alliance, someone who works there, I thought that was worrying. Danny, any insight? Well, yes, as the Director of Advocacy for a charity, I'm a bit concerned and I suspect the Head of Policy may well have some thoughts as well. This is one of those things that comes around every year. Every now and then, there's a story in the press about charities being too political or saying too much. And there's usually someone who's saying charities need to get back in their box, concentrate on what they're founded for and not engage in politics. The problem is that is a massive oversimplification of both the law and what charities are for. Um, charities have charitable objects. The thing, the, there are the things that they pursue that means that they have charitable status, therefore they're not businesses, they don't pay tax in the same way, they can gain gift aid and all of that. That's what they should be focused on. But the law is very clear that charities can use uh, politics and campaigning as they seek to pursue those charitable ends. So that means we can uh, lobby politicians, we can campaign on issues, we can engage in legislation as it's going through Parliament, all as we seek to advance our charitable objects. And that applies to all sorts of charities. So when you have the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, campaigning about the environment and the protection of the national habitat that's part of their charitable objects and the same for all sorts of other charities it's so this particular outing this was a speech by the new head of the charity commission orlando fraser actually i read the speech and i thought it was a pretty decent speech he was quite firm that charities can engage in political activities and actually what struck me most was that i thought the reporting of the speech was pretty poor and was trying to stir up something into a story that didn't really exist so alicia how do we how do we decide what's our place to when it's our place to speak into politics or what's going on and when we don't 
I mean, going back to Danny's response, the kind of charitable status of the organisation Stroke Charity makes it clear what its purposes are uh, and its objectives. I'd also have a slight pushback on the media uh, and the journalists who wrote that article. So much of charitable organisations occupy spaces for which the public sector is not doing so (laughs) charities are providing services that are for children for the elderly for different parts of of society if they're dealing with systemic issues poverty addiction family breakdown surely they should also be speaking to those policymakers about what they could be doing to reduce uh, and bring kind of community cohesion and and seek to inform policy and political debate the media was always historically meant to be doing that but often they're in the the ear of uh, number 10 and well connected that they tend to follow the narrative that comes out of government rather than critique and analyze it and be objective and be that different voice that challenges policy so the media is coming for charities I think many charities would ask the media what are they doing on a lot of the political issues of the day how are they using their platform to bring about change and but I think that I do want to say one word of warning for charities because I think sometimes charities can get carried away and think that everything is fine because they're a charity and I think it is important that charities do stay out of party politics. Uh, And I think sometimes it has looked as though charities are overwhelmingly in favour of one uh, political party or the other. And it's important charities don't support a political party. And for an organisation like the Evangelical Alliance, it's important that we're broad. Mm. We represent Christians that vote for many different parties. And therefore we feel that both for our charitable status and our representative nature, that it's crucial that we keep that breadth. And it will be different for different charities, but I think it is important that charities do keep an eye on the perception of their activities and how they might be viewed, as well as actually whether they're legally defensible uh, based on their uh, charitable objects. Well, it's time for us to close up this episode of Cross Section. As I said, please get in touch with things that you think that we've missed or things that we didn't touch upon at all and we should be. Let us know your experiences. That's cross.section at eauk.org to email in. I think we've touched quite a bit on this episode, whether we intended to or not, on that as the role of, of Christians is not just... Well, our role is to love our neighbours and sometimes that looks like loving them directly and sometimes it will look like advocating for better services to be in place because although it's always going to be the job, whether it's mental health or or other issues, it's always going to be the job of the church to love those around us. But sometimes we have to acknowledge that we can't do everything and advocate for there to be better services in place. That's just my little thought as we finish up today. Join us next week on Cross Section. Cross Section. Conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture.